I put my feet very firmly on the deck and ignored the pedals and that was a help in telling me that they weren't working anymore. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Have you ever had a really good reason to start a helicopter inside a building? And if you did, was it as big as a Wessex? Well, that's how the book Rescue Pilot starts. Jerry Grayson is today's guest, and he's recently published a book looking back at his career as a Royal Navy a SAR pilot, and then later into commercial helicopter flying. Jerry first got a mention on the show back in episode 14, where Dennis Kenyon spoke about working with Jerry on the film Black Hawk Down. In this interview, we touch on just a few of the stories in the book, but also then go into a little bit more depth on a tarot of failure that Jerry had in an Augusta 109. Jerry has had a, a very interesting career. He was the youngest pilot ever accepted into the Royal Navy and was posted to the aircraft or the British aircraft carrier, the Ark Royal. He flew Sea Kings, Whirlwinds and Wessex machines. He participated in the rescue flights during the, the Fast Net Ocean race in 1979 where 136 people were rescued and another 15 people lost their lives. At the end of his Navy career, he was the highest decorated pilot in the Royal Navy and was awarded the Air Force Cross. These days, Jerry is more well known for his film flying. He's written, directed and filmed for an IMAX film. His company also won contracts to supply aerial filming for the Olympics, the Soccer World Cup, Commonwealth Games and a Formula One series. Jerry Grayson, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. Thank you very much for having me. Really uh, thoroughly enjoyed the invite and looking forward to doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it too. So I've just read through your book and, and it's called uh, Rescue Pilot with the subtitle there, Cheating the Sea. So I know you're, you're pretty busy at the moment. You're, uh, you're traveling around and you've done quite a, a few media sort of interviews and things like that. But yeah, you just want to tell folks a little bit about the book and, and I guess, you know, the travels at the moment to promote that. Sure, yeah. No, thanks for reading it, Nick. The book is something that I've been meaning to do for about 35 years. We all think we've got one book in us. I think I've got two in me because I've, I've sort of always intended it as, as being the first part of, uh, of a two-parter and the second part being film pilot. So the Rescue Pilot is, um, it, it is a collection of stories from my time flying on search and rescue in the, in the Royal Navy. And that was way back in uh, sort of 78, 79, 80. And um, I'd been scribbling down ideas and, and, and scribbling down memories, really, before I got too senile and forgot about them. And there came a point where I went, oh, well, I, I should try and put this together as a book. So I, um, for about 18 months, I disciplined myself to you know, spend a couple of hours each each day in the quiet when the phones aren't ringing and, um, and put it together as a book. Really writing it as if for my kids, frankly, um, they're now sort of uh, early 30s and, and, and I wanted to tell them a few of the stories that I've told at dinner parties. And um, and in fact, it was my daughter who one day picked up the first couple of chapters and said, Dad, you've got to finish this. So uh, I did uh, bother to sit down and really get 
to it. And I said, well, look, I'll, I'll finish it if you'll edit it. So it was quite interesting having the perspective of um, somebody who's you know, much younger, not involved in helicopters at all, and uh, another technical person. And, and it was a really interesting process to take the sort of stories that you know one aviator will tell another and turn it into something that was enjoyable and understandable by somebody who has nothing to do with aviation. So eventually uh, there I had a book and um, uh, and my wife Sarah had a, a good edit at it as well. And we said, well, okay, let's see if we can get it published. So uh, Sarah beetled away and, and, and eventually got uh, four offers from publishers. And one of those was Bloomsbury, who we very much chose to go with and, and been excited to have done that. So, yeah, I uh, came out in the UK in uh, middle of March and uh, here in Australia, uh, beginning of April. And so the, the life at the moment is is quite a whirlwind of, uh, of pushing that and talking about it and um, getting out and signing books and, uh, and meeting people. It's, it's, it's a fun process. I'm really, really enjoying it. Yeah, and look, as you read it, you can definitely see that it's got a wider audience than just aircrew. But but reading it, being a uh, helicopter pilot or having you know helicopter industry background, it's you know you, I guess you you read it at a different level to other folks, and there's definitely heaps in there and lots of sort of tales and stories. And we're going to cherry pick a, a couple of those ones to touch on today. But uh, I know you've been on the BBC, they did an interview with those guys. What sort of other things you've been up to as far as uh, media appearances? Well, yeah, we tried to get back to the UK, which was you know, originally home, although I feel that much a part of Australia now. We've been here for 12 years, and um, you know, with, with kids and parents in the UK, obviously, yeah, try and get back once a year. And um, this time, I said, I said to Sarah, look, um, you know, the book's being launched, and that that will be fun. Can we uh, have a bit of uh, aviation fun this time? I, I, we don't want to spend a whole month going around kissing babies in the UK. <laughs> And she went overboard, and really, we had already defined where some of the machines were that that I had flown on rescues. So we made it a bit of a sort of pilgrimage to to find, if we could, all of the airframes that were were still in existence. And the um, the press very much picked up on that, so made a bit of a story out of uh, you know, going going looking for old airframes. And at the same time, there was um, a, uh, a a program on the BBC called Reunion which is uh, about once a month, I think they have it. And they, they gather together five people from uh, some big event of long ago and join them back together to kind of talk about their, their perspective of that event from that long ago. And the one they happened to be doing whilst I was there was on the fast net of, uh, of 1979. So for those who don't know that, here in Australia, you know, we have the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race, and that had a, uh, a horrendous disaster in 1998. But before that, in 1979, uh, the Fastnet Yacht Race, which uh, leaves from um, the Portsmouth area in, in southern England, goes to the west, up around Cornwall, and up to the Fastnet Rock, just off Ireland, and then back down to Plymouth. And um, that, very much like the, the Sydney Hobart disaster uh, was hit by extraordinary weather and so yeah the, the the reunion program on the BBC took the race organizer uh, myself um, the last guy to be picked up alive that day 
and a couple of other yachtsmen and and uh, and we chatted for about three hours and and it was really quite a quite a, a sort of defining and very very emotional uh, reunion that uh, nonetheless it was enjoyable to do and it hugely validated my memories of of that day because I, I had begun to suspect over the years that perhaps I was exaggerating it in my head, you know, and that the waves were, you know, perhaps impressive but not as impressive as I was writing them. But the, the yachties were saying, honestly, Jerry, if anything, you're understating it. And for us, it was like sailing towards a cliff, literally every wave that came. And the the report on the race the, uh, and the aftermath speaks of an average of 45-foot waves and, and, and once every three hours, a maximum of, of, of 85 to 90-foot waves. So um, meeting, again, the guys who had, who had been in it all those years ago was sort of validation for, for how I remembered it. And so I, I was particularly pleased with that. And um, so, yes, it, 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 it spun off into, uh, into a whole month of, um, of visiting airframes, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Fantastic, because I know, and the, the website that goes along with the book is it's rescuepilot.net, and um, reading through that, there's all that stuff there that you basically couldn't fit in the book that you're now putting up on, on the website. But uh, one of the photos, and as uh, we tie in with where you went back and looked at the, the airframes, is it's now a prop in a, in a paintball field. Yeah, there's, uh, there's three of those, actually. And, you know, I started off, having found those pictures and those locations, I started off going, oh, I'm not sure how happy I am about those being there in, in those circumstances, but actually, you know, so many of them ended up in the in the fire pits for uh, for firefighting practice. That the fact that it's got yet another little life serving as a prop in that way, I, I, I became comfortable with. And and then what happened was that the the guys who own these machines, particularly there's a there's a world in seven that I learned on that's. Um, the paintball site down in Cowbridge in, in South Wales. And um, they're lovely people there. And, and uh, we went together on uh, BBC Radio Wales and did an interview and so on. But we went and visited the airframe, which it was, you know, obviously in pretty sad condition. But they were so excited to learn more about, you know, what their airframe had done and the history and I, I really really enjoyed sharing with them the, the photographs of it when it was uh, when it was airborne and, and and particularly you know news reports from that time and all that kind of thing and it was it was just fun to to get together with people who really cared about the machine although it was you know, very much on its last legs so I came away sort of happier that uh, that she if i can say that that she was still alive inverted commas and uh, and people were you know still having fun with her so so i i, I sort of uh, put that one to rest in my head oh that's fantastic and again folks when uh, i'm jibbing with jerry here but on the uh, website when you go there the uh, promotional shots you'll see a very uh, steely-eyed uh, male model uh, sort of photo of Jerry as the uh, the book cover there, so you can uh, check that out and have the uh, the heart throb effect. But um, yeah, Jerry, it's, it's, oh, sorry, it's the Photoshop a wonderful thing. 
Now, I think one of the claims, I don't know if it's still the case, but at uh, one stage you were probably the most decorated um, Navy pilot. I think I got that right. But uh, the, the Air Force Cross uh, you were awarded um, when you're, you're in the, the Royal Navy. Can you just give a quick background to that? And again, you know, it's obviously called Air Force Cross, but uh, what's the background to the Air Force Cross and uh, the actual incident that uh, you got awarded that for? Yeah, I'm, I'm always a bit uncomfortable with the sort of um, PR thing of most decorated. I think... I may still be. The Air Force Cross is the highest award for gallantry in the air, which you know started out being for the Air Force, and then I'm talking the UK here, and then became a medal across all three forces uh, for flying. And I received that at the at the end of my naval career. In fact, about a year after I had left the Navy, it was awarded to me. Uh, in the honours list, so you know that was uh, that was quite something. Um, I hadn't had the letter in advance to warn me that I was getting it, so the first I knew was when it appeared in the newspaper, which was you know, one of those moments in life, definitely. And um, that was kind of for the career as a whole, because I'd I'd hogged the um, the search and rescue job for more than my fair share, and I'd I'd really done um, two consecutive tours on search and rescue. And it happened that, you know, while I was doing that, um, there were quite a few significant rescues that happened. The other part of that story is that the um, one of our other rescues, which actually is um, chapter one of the book, which you can read for free at rescuepilot.net, is uh, that that was a rescue of uh, five Greek crewmen from a from a ship that was foundering, and that was or that resulted in again after I'd left the navy receiving the Greek Medal of Honor, uh, which is their highest award. So, yeah, I've ended up holding the highest award out of, out of two countries, which I think is pretty unusual. And yeah, then, well, know, well, look, some of, the, some of the stories in the book, it's, uh, yeah, you definitely worked for it. So, uh, Thank you. Yeah, no, congratulations. <laughs> but, uh, all right, well, let's, let's get through. Well, actually, before we leave that, um, I think in the book, again, without going into too much detail, when you get the news, you're actually building a, a hangar, and you had a welder in hand, and I think you actually uh, welded something in the in the side of the hangar um, to that effect. Is that hangar still standing? Or did you can you go back and, and yep. see see that uh, uh, graffiti? <laughs> yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You have read the book, haven't you, Mick? Yeah, absolutely. You can um, test me on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I was literally building a hangar at the time, and uh, and was up a very tall ladder welding two very big RSJs together and somebody shouted uh, your wife's on the phone you better come and answer and oh good grief I've got to climb all my all my way down this scaffolding which I did and so rather irritably said yes what and she said are you sitting down I said no I'm welding what and she said well um you perhaps better sit down because you're in the newspaper and you've uh, been awarded the Air Force Cross at which point I did sit down quite rapidly and then uh, anyway after we'd uh, got the, the surprise of that I then climbed back up the ladder to the top and I started the welding machine back up and went mm, okay so I welded Jerry AFC across a very large beam and to my knowledge it's still there to this day. 
Uh, and yeah, the, the British, little bits of British humour just sneak through, and, and, and one bit, um, obviously, you, you then meant the, the Queen at one stage and got awarded, but uh, uh, I think your reference in the book is that um, you know you met someone who, who bore a, a passing resemblance to the Queen, and uh, a few little bits like that were thrilled all the way through that I had a, a chuckle at. So, that, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you can imagine it, it is completely surreal scenario to be driving your car into the literally through the gates and into the middle of Buckingham Palace to then be um, going to an investiture by, by Her Majesty. You know, it's quite, uh, really, really quite an exceptional event and one I'm very proud of. And the, there are little bits of your life that, that stand uh, like in a little bubble by themselves and, and that's definitely one of those. No, well done. All right, well, let's jump into some of the stories and start cracking through. So I've just, as we spoke before, but I've cherry-picked a couple here just to give people a taste of your career and sort of what's inside the book. But the first one that um, a lot of folks will you know, have a sort of somewhat of a shared experience is the, the selection board for the military. So I think you were 16 possibly when you're actually standing in front of the, I don't know, the admirals or whoever was on the selection board. And uh, they said, possibly not uh, mature enough, we'll go do some more study. And I think you said, no, take it or leave it. I'm either, uh, I'm off to the, the Army and the Air Force next. Was that about how it ran? And if it was, look, that's a, a very ballsy move for a 16-year-old who's desperate to go flying. It's not ballsy, mate. It's bloody arrogant, really, isn't it? Isn't it the arrogance of youth something that's quite scary? I mean, at the time, I was, you know, I, I, since I was about six, I'd always wanted to fly. And I'd got to the stage where I said, well, I've had enough of school. It's time to go flying. And uh, all, of, all of my life, every, everything had been orientated towards going flying. And so, yeah, the... the uh, I applied when I was still 16, and, and normally you'd stay in school, obviously, till at least 18. And in fact, nowadays, or very soon after I joined, they, they turned it into a graduate entry, so you, you know, had to have a degree. So, yes, I, I'm pretty sure I still hold the record for being the youngest ever to join. But how did um, you, you actually phrase that when they said, um, uh, no, uh, come back later? <laughs> How did you actually uh, indicate the fact that um, it was take it or leave it? I can't honestly remember. I mean, it was very... It, every time I think of it, I sort of squirm and stop thinking about it because, <laughs> you know, it's probably one sentence in your life and it, and it completely changes your whole life. I mean, thank, thank heaven they did say yes. So I could end up as a Navy pilot rather than one of the other two forces. But uh, the arrogance that, that allows you to do that... Cause, Reach. I, I recoil in horror now. But what actually happened was that they then they said, "Look, we can't, we cannot take you until you're 17." And I was about three months short of my 17th birthday by then. And so they said, "Look, we'll give you a flying scholarship, which is what they normally give to." Um, I don't know if they still do it, but at that time they gave it to six formers, as, it, as it's called in the UK. So even your last year at school, and. Um, so basically, the Navy paid for you to go to a civilian PPL school. And uh, so I had an idyllic month in the middle of August, you know, summer in the UK. It was actually a summer in the UK, and there aren't many of those. And uh, had a, a fantastic time where I was either in the classroom flying or over at the motor racing side of, uh, of the track at Goodwood running errands for the, the, the new driver who was uh, who was testing there called Mickey Lauder. 
So uh, I was combining my two loves in life of the motor racing and the flying, and it was just, again, another little bubble in one's life that, that sits by itself. It was, it was extraordinary. So, yes, the Navy paid for me to, to do a PPL, and by which time I'd passed my 17th birthday, and off I went to, to Dartmouth and all of the rest of it. Excellent. Well, look, let's jump ahead. You heard, so you obviously did the training and things like that, and then uh, you got to a point where there was eight Sea Kings turning and burning on the uh, the Ark Royal there at one stage, and uh, as you were working off the the carrier, and that must have been a you know just a, a sight to be sitting there in the seat and and seeing that. Do you know me? I mean, I still say to this day that I think the uh, the deck of a carrier is the most exciting place on earth. When I say that, I say it as a an old bugger who uh, who was there when you know you used to have catapult launches of the Phantom F4s and the Buccaneers and so on, brute power, brute force, throwing these uh, you know multi-ton machines off the off the front, and um, you know to be operating even from the from the same flight deck was just a huge turn, and um, you know your discipline and air traffic and and, and the way you behave had to be absolutely perfect. And I, I was on Ark Royal for a couple of years and then and then went back on to her a couple of years later when I was flying search and rescue and flew the, the plane guard job, which is where you sit off to one side of the ship and um, you're there in order to pick up any uh, fixed-wing aviators who, who don't make it. Thankfully, never had to do that. But you know, not long before I was in that job, um, it was quite a regular thing to lose um, jet pilots off the front of carriers. And uh, the technique in the mid-60s was to, for the, for the search and rescue helicopter to leap ahead of the ship and try and get the aviators out before the ship uh, ran them over until, you know, one day inevitably um, the helicopter was run over at the same time. And so thereafter, the, the technique was to uh, for the for the fixing guys to stay in their cockpit as the aircraft was sinking, let the carrier all you know 900 feet of it drive over the top of them, and then they would blow the canopy and come out behind the ship, so there was no danger of them or the or the rescue helicopter getting um, run over. And uh, one of my mates was a, an observer on uh, on Phantom F4s, and uh, he claims to have seen the whole of the underside of the Ark Royal four times, um, which, you know, these days is, uh, is beyond belief. But it was quite a usual occurrence in those days. But yeah, I, I mean, in, in, in both incarnations, both flying Sea Kings on anti-submarine and protecting the Ark Royal, and then uh, particularly on the Wessex as, as plane guard, I just loved that ship. It was, it was a very sad day um, when she was scrapped. It's a pretty um, one of the interesting stories there in any time of the Ark Royal was the the Sea King that had an engine failure and uh, it basically had enough power just to, to keep upright in the water, but not enough to actually then depart and uh, take off. I can't remember if it was actually at night or not either. But uh, yeah, can you t- talk about that story? Yeah, sure. Um, the Sea King in question had been in the hover, you know, as we did for hour after hour after hour with the with the sonar boy dangling in the water. And um, one of the engines had, uh, had failed on them. So although, you know, pretty powerful engines, um, you couldn't hover on one. So she sank gently onto the surface. And the, the technique was that, in theory, you could stay rotors running 
uh, on the surface of the water because the, the Sea King has that sort of rather distinctive boat hole shape to it. And you could sit there, rogers running, and then you would effectively fly it forwards um, until you got up enough speed that you then got translational lift and you, and you could then uh, you know, get off the water. But the problem, as you rightly say, is that it was, uh, it was at night uh, and you absolutely cannot do that without a, a horizon reference. So they, they sat there uh, burning and turning on the water and, and effectively flying it you know, with what power they did have, keeping it, it light on the hull and, and flying it over e- each wave, really waiting for the, for the dawn to arrive. By the time we got to them, the bed had been on there for probably two and a half hours on the on the on the water. I think it was about 120 miles away from where the where the ship was at the time, and um, they were starting to get pretty sick. But more particularly, although the dawn was not far away, the water ingress into the underside of the hull had started to happen. And the Sea King down under the nose has all of its electronics bay. So, you know, gradually, you know, one thing after another was failing until you get to the point where, where they went, honestly, this is, this, this thing is not going to fly again. So it was, uh, you know, almost poetic that as the sun started to creep above the, the horizon, we're talking down, uh, just off Florida and, uh, you know, the day starts to warm up and, and, uh, and there's the art rule steaming over the horizon, having been hammering along for the last three or four hours. And uh, that was really the point where the, there were too many things failing on the machine. And they said, no, let's, let's abandon this. So um, in the end, I, uh, I didn't get to pick them out. Um, the, the boat from the, from the art rule did that. And then they attached the seeking to a crane and, and hoisted it on board. But uh, yeah, it was a couple of hours of uh, of watching over these guys, um, and uh, and really being very glad that I was airborne and and not on the water where they were. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, Jerry, being a navy pilot's not high on my list of, of things to do. I spent a couple of weeks on it, but uh, I think in the Australian Navy, at least the the helicopter pilots on board are the, the highest paid uh, guys on the ship. They actually get more than, than the uh, than the captains. So, really? Um, yeah, absolutely. By the time you put all the different um, sort of payloading and stuff like that on there for a, a senior helicopter pilot they were on, on frigates and things like that here in Australia, I'm pretty sure that they get more than the uh, the seamen officers as captains. So, but uh, they, I didn't know that. I think they, they definitely earn it. Um, well, you guys did. There's, I've only been outside of the ship um, once. Every other time we were sort of close by enough to be doing circuits or doing work around the ship. So there's only once where I was actually couldn't see the ship. And that brings me on to the next part is this idea of navving, you know, out over the ocean, whether it's at night or during the day, and being outside of, you know, home, you can't see the, the home base. And uh, I, I know the Navy, they, they love doing their, their radio silence sort of, um, you know, exercises and things like that. And you guys were in the middle of the Cold War. So, yeah, can you talk about that, that whole navigation part of things? When you're out over the water, there's nothing else to see. It's, uh, is it just dead reckoning or what's the process? Yeah, sure. You know, we we get terribly spoiled these days with GPS, don't we? We all have it on our mobile phones, even. And it, you know, it's like uh, try remembering the time before we had the internet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
and um, we all reminisce about fax machines and things like that. Well, in those days, you know, a, a fax machine was only just being thought of. And the different techniques of navigation were, were pretty basic and uh, really not, not a lot had changed in, in a very long time. So when flying the Sea Kings, you know, it really wasn't my job to navigate. It was the, the observers in the back. Um, and he would do that uh, mainly using the radar. And, you know, that was I mean, fairly basic radar. We're talking about a Mark I seeking, you know, not the, not the airborne early warning ones that were developed later. So using that radar, he would, uh, he, he would really be in charge of the navigation. And then I kind of went backwards because I then, I, you know, on search and rescue, I was on uh, Wessex. And, you know, there's nothing in that whatsoever in the Wessex 1 and the Wessex 5, by, by the time we got them on search and rescue, they had served their uh, frontline work and, uh, and were very basic flying machines. So there was nothing. We were, we were doing that on a, you know, a compass and a piece of paper, literally. And the time when that really was brought home to me was, was uh, you know, going back to the, the Fastnet race, when we're dealing with uh, quite long distances up to about 70 or 80 miles out from the coast, when there was certainly no chance of, of, of even getting um, DF bearings, we were helped a bit by a, by a RF Nimrod over the top. But my, my crewman was doing it purely on dead reckoning and a, a, and a paper chart, um, and he got us back within a hundred meters of where we had coasted out about two and a quarter hours earlier. Yeah, so that's pretty impressive. My, and the, the other thing there, Jerry, is he wasn't just navving the whole time. Um, I think from the, the story, he was actually then also operating the, the winch where he was doing other duties in the aircraft. It wasn't that he was just sitting there navving the whole time. Not exactly right, yeah. I mean, for, for, oh, I don't know, a good 45 minutes, he was operating the winch. But you know, you made allowances for the winds and all of the rest of it, and 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 got us back that accurately. Well, I mean, one of our colleagues coasted in about 40 miles away uh, away from where he thought he was. So you know, that gives you some idea of the of the room for error. And uh, you know, we just relied on these guys so much that way in the Wessex and uh, and uh, on the uh, observers in the in the seeking. And I have the um, the utmost regard for people who can navigate in that way. But uh, there was an interesting exchange on one of the SAR social media pages uh, recently, uh, where people were, were reflecting on, you know, what do you do when your GPS fails? Well, my biggest lesson, I suppose, on navigation was the day that I had meticulously prepared for a trip can't remember exactly where I was going now, but it was up through the middle of England and uh, unfamiliar territory. So I'd you know, really sat and planned it and mapped it all out. And on one map had all of the frequencies and all of the waypoints and everything. And, and of course, five minutes after takeoff, the bloody map blew out the window. So that was a lesson in how to put it in your head as well as on a piece of paper. You know, what do you do when the map disappears? And I sort of carried that forward in, in flying. So um, when GPS came along and, and there was this wonderful toy on the, on the front panel that we could uh, fixate on, 
um, two lessons. One, don't fixate on it. And, and two, assume that it's not going to work and therefore be able to fall back on the map and you know, be able to fall back on your, on your head and your memory. So, yeah, very, very different uh, days uh, of navigational technique, certainly. And I think it's a bit of an in-joke with um, airplane or helicopter designers too, the fact that they try and make all those doors with uh, that suction effect. So as soon as you open it, you think it, uh, it tries to suck <laughs> your map and you need board <laughs> out. I'm sure they, they sit there laughing as they design these things. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. No, there's, there are many aspects to the design of a helicopter where if I ever meet a helicopter designer, I think I'm going to have to just stand him up against the wall and punch him in the face <laughs> because the airflow that you talk about there nearly took me out one day when uh, a smoke canister went off in the in the back of the aircraft and it all just came up through the seat and I was enveloped in orange smoke to the extent that I couldn't even see my own instrument panel. So you're absolutely right. The, 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 the airflow through the helicopter is bizarre and is specifically designed, without a doubt, to take your map out of the window. So that's wonderful. I did once lose a map and, and actually find it still stuck onto the tail boom when I arrived at destination. Oh, nice work. Well, talking about design, so, okay, so you, you flew the, the Whirl and the Wessex um, for parts of your career, and, I mean, they're a really unique design uh, compared to a lot of other bits and pieces. So, yeah, can you want to just sort of talk us through what it was like to fly those, the fact you actually got to climb up into the, the cockpit and you're sort of up there by yourself and everyone's down underneath. Oh, Mick, so wonderful. I mean, so macho to climb up the side and mount your trusty steed. Wonderful, loved it, we all loved it. When we were in a hurry doing a search and rescue scramble, we sort of prided ourselves on being able to go from the bell to airborne in about 90 seconds. And um, uh, most of the uh, parts of that 90 seconds were pre-fixed, but uh, the one bit that was a variable was how quickly you could get up the side. And if you if you started with the correct leg on the on the wheel first, it was elegance personified. If you got the wrong leg on the wheel first, then you got to the top and there was no way you could get into the cockpit because your legs were all back to front. So um, I think it, it must have been, the Wessex must have been probably the last one that you actually climbed up the side of. And uh, I saw, again, on, on a social media exchange the other day, I saw an exchange between... Uh, a young guy who rather breathlessly asked, so what, what, what was it like to fly the Wessex? And, uh, and the old guy replied rather laconically that he thought it was like flying a, uh, a two-story house while sitting on the upstairs loo. And that's, <laughs> that's not, a bad, not a bad description of, the, of both the height, the size of the machine, and, of the, and the comfort of, <laughs> of sitting there. But we all absolutely loved it. If you ever see any stories from when the, the, the Wessex was a jungly machine, you know, delivering commandos into the jungle or into the deserts or whatever, you will never find a person who didn't love flying the Wessex. Had so much power. You know, had two MOM engines of a seeking, but about, I want to say, half the weight that probably is about right. And uh, the thing just did what you wanted and, and went where you, where you wanted to go. And you could do wonderful arrivals, you know, thrilling the crowds in air day by huge flare that you just kissed the tail uh, wheel onto the ground and then rotated down around that, um, that pivot point. And, uh, and just 
checking that I'm correcting what I'm about to say. Yeah, I was never ever let down by Wessex, not not in any way, and that was in sort of three years of flying her. I just loved it, really loved it. Is it still your favourite aircraft? Like since then, you know, you obviously flown a lot of Civi models and things like that. But um, would that still be the, the favourite in the stable? Probably is, to be honest. Yes, you know, this process of uh, of visiting old airframes in connection with the book. You know, I got to sit in a few that have been beautifully preserved or, or beautifully renovated, and it, it really did bring it all uh, all flooding back. But because it gave so much, you could you could totally concentrate on the mission that you were on, and you could concentrate on people, and you could concentrate on airmanship and and you know wind and cliffs and waves and all of that stuff. There was a surprisingly small amount of brain worrying about what the aircraft was doing, and of course it was you know long before the days of complex flight management systems. So there was really very little to look at in the cockpit beyond your, your basic engine and gearbox instruments, you know your T's and P's, and so you you could concentrate much more on the task. I I don't have enough experience of the of the modern machines and, and, and the glass cockpits and all the rest of it to to be able to comment on whether um, that's a good or a bad thing. I'm, I'm sure it's good to have all of those abilities there at your fingertips, but I worry sometimes whether you've got so many abilities there that you are concentrating on them to the exclusion of, of, of other more basic stuff. And you know, going back to what we were saying about uh, GPS, when we first got that in, the first one I saw was in a jet ranger, and um, you know there was this wonderful television screen on top of your combing, and you had to really discipline yourself to go, never mind that, it's just another aid. You know, get back to the basics of uh, of a good lookout um, with an occasional glance back into that, but don't become fixated on it. And I think it, it's quite easy to become fixated on, on stuff that's in the cockpit and, 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 and to the... Uh, detriment of the, of the task that you're doing. Jumping ahead, and um, we won't do too much of the film flying stuff, but I don't know, do you have a repeater uh, sort of TV camera in the in the front at all? Like, and do you sort of monitor that as you're doing the, the film flying? Yes, indeed. But I very early on, I took to taking a, a second pilot with me so that, uh, you know, he's worrying about the aircraft and the airmanship and I can concentrate on the film side of things. Because unless you are in very isolated circumstances, you know, I'm talking about uh, in a, a restricted piece of airspace that's restricted just for you, or, you know, if you're down low in a quarry or something and you can be uh, um, con- completely concentrating on on what you're doing to the exclusion of all the normal airmanship stuff, then you're running a risk of, of o- overloading yourself. So, yeah, I... Once we once we got more into gyro stabilized cameras and therefore the the need to monitor what that camera is doing out at the long end of the zoom, that that was when I, I really took to to having another pilot alongside me and doing the the basic stuff uh, in the interest of, of you know, safety all around. Okay, sorry, I was on a bit of a tangent there. Look, well, there's a couple of other stories. We might see how we go for time for those. But what I wanted to do is jump through and I guess really spend some time on one of the emergencies that you had, where you had a, a tail rotor failure in an Augusta 109. And I guess the setup for this is you talk about a Sea King crew had a, a similar had a, a tail rotor failure early on in your career, and 
you know, all the air crew and, and yourself included used to sit around them in the bar and, and, and get all the stories from that. And that was, you know, you found that really useful when you had your own emergency. So I'm kind of hoping we can do the same thing again and, and sort of get you to talk about that and, and take us through it. Uh, so again, someone who's listening uh, might be able to fall back on, on some extra ideas in the uh, instance they actually have a, a tower failure themselves. So yeah, can you talk us through, I guess, what, what happened in the event and the setup and uh, the process you went through and, and yeah, the background to that? Sure. Well, yeah, that was that was in a, in a 109. The great thing about the 109, of course, is that it has a huge tail fin. And so the big lessons I learned out of that were, number one, there's that moment where it goes bang and suddenly you are flying it feels like almost on your side because the, the obviously the, the, the heading is not quite into the direction of travel. The very first thing that came into my head and I had to really discipline myself to shake it off was what have I done to make this happen? And that occupied a, a, a disproportionate amount of time. I had to go, it doesn't matter what has made this happen to get that. And... Uh, in my particular case, it was a, it was a, um, a piece of uh, metallurgical error where the, you know, in manufacture there was a, there was a stress point put into the Terra drive shaft, which let go, you know, one day when I was cruising along at 5,000 feet. In fact, thankfully, that is when it happened because I'd spent the previous four or five hours in the hover up the side of the mountain doing some film works. So, you know, arguably, that was what had stressed it to uh, its conclusion. But anyway, it, thankfully, it didn't let go until I was in the cruise at about 120, 130 knots and up high. So, yeah, the first thing was uh, getting rid of the idea that um, that you had caused it. The second thing was I found it extremely hard to remember that the pedals weren't working anymore. The natural inclination was to keep the feet on the pedals. And then, of course, you keep going, oh, no, they're not working, are they? And so I put my feet very firmly on the deck and ignored the pedals. And that, and that was a help in telling me that they weren't working anymore. That probably sounds a bit stupid, but we're talking at a time when your brain is... is well, I actually seen that in training, like when you practice, you know, jam pedals with um, with students, and they know the pedals are jammed, but you'll still come down a final, and you'll still feel them pushing on the pedals, even though they yeah. know that's not working. It's just that that reaction. So I can't understand that. Yeah, no, you know, your brain's up at a hundred percent plus some, and so anything that you can take out of that equation, and and that was okay, put your feet on the floor, and then you're not going to be trying to push against that. The Third lesson out of it was that if you take a helicopter and you actively try and fly it in a very strange way, let's say that you're flying along quite rapidly and you're, and you, you, you're deliberately tilting it on its side so that its um, heading is not the same as its track by a long chalk, if you gradually take yourself into that, you will get to a point where you go, gosh, I can't believe this is still really flying machine but it is still doing it when you are launched into that involuntarily uh, by the machine failing um, it is a huge fright obviously and the big surprise was 
was finding that actually it would fly in that configuration. Now, I go back to the fact that you know it's a 109 with a big uh, tail surface area, so and you're also going pretty quick. So were you still up around yeah. 100 plus, or yeah? And I then used the time to you know, reduce speed and find where the where the uh, speed was I didn't want to go below, and you know, that really was about 60 knots. Um, so I ended up so doing what sort that, of uh, what sort of your angle where you're at back around that that point? Oh, a good 30 to 45 degrees off. Okay, and. The other thing I was just going to say, and I think it's what you were alluding to in, in the question, that um, the uh, uh, the thing that astonished me was, and I talk about it in some detail in the book, but that your brain apparently is capable of huge amounts more than you normally use it for. And in my case, within two seconds of that failure and that enormous yaw, I had taken every conversation I'd ever had, um, particularly as, as you said, with, um, with the crew that had you know, returned uh, after terrible failure on seeking, and I examined that, I analysed it, I took bits of that conversation and kept them and discarded the rest of it. I did that with everything I'd ever heard, discussed, read studied about a terror rotor failure and the brain went you need this you don't need that you need this you don't need that and at the end of about two seconds i had in my head what my options were what the answers were what i was going to do what i wasn't going to do and it hugely impressed me my brain has never worked like that before or since if you if you'd asked me a couple of minutes before tell us everything you know about tail rotors I probably couldn't have told you 90% of what was apparently buried there in the head. So, you know, that's a, I thought that was quite a, a reassuring thing that actually stuff that you study and read about and, and take an interest in um, and you think it's all gone, but actually it's all in there somewhere. And uh, there's no doubt on that day that uh, it was a massive help. Just to add some context to that, Jerry, when you were doing the SAR work or you know through the Navy training, did you spend a lot of time, you know, practicing tower failures or things like that, or was it just something you were done early in training and not really really hashed? All I'm getting there is like you know how how much of a drilled response uh, was that compared to you know I guess your average pilot? No, on the on the SAR stuff, uh, you know, you didn't particularly concentrate any more than anybody else on failures. You were more concentrating on your ability in extreme circumstances, you know, particularly cliff work and, and that kind of thing, when you, you're hovering with, you know, the blades no more than maybe 18 inches, something like that, away from the, the side of the cliff. And you would be, you know, highly interested in subjects like recirculating air and, and uh, you know, what's the difference between an updraft and a downdraft in terms of how your aircraft will, will respond in proximity to land as close as that. All right, so, so it wasn't that you going out every two months and, and doing a, a session of emergency circuits or, or things like that then? All, all no, I'm getting is just, no, you know, no. how you know, sort of overtrained you would have been. So, yeah, okay, that's all right. No, no, not, not on, on that side of things. And I, I you know, I'm, I, I, uh, I think being a, a decent pilot is, um, is partly about recognising what you're good at and what you're bad at. And, you know, the, the good stuff I'm 
I think I'm good at it, um, or perhaps was good at it, is, uh, you know, the hands-on stuff, the judgment, the reaction time, all of those sort of things, and, you know, getting into the, the kind of thing that you need to know for cliff work. My bad stuff is uh, is the academic side of it, remembering temperatures and pressures on different airframes and all of that kind of thing. I've, I've never been particularly good at. So the fact, therefore, that I was able to recall all of this tech stuff at the very moment that I needed it was quite a surprise to me. It was, you know, it was, it was somehow exaggerated by my general incompetence of those sort of things in uh, in the normal run of things. All right, so sorry, I took us off track there again. But um, so you had it pretty well stabilised in flight, and you were heading back for uh, an airfield for recovery. Yeah, what was the the next sort of steps in the process? Sure, um, I was joined by an S seventy six who was on his way back from one of the uh, oil rigs in uh, northern England, and um, I really I, I asked him if he could uh, take a look at. Uh, my tail section because obviously I had no idea at that stage whether I had a tail rotor on there uh, whether it had completely departed I didn't know whether I had I assumed I had, had my tail boom there because of the um, the effect of the fin but I didn't know whether it was hanging by a thread or, or whether it was um, you know, solid I, did, I really didn't have any idea of the state of the back of my aircraft so I was very glad of him uh, joining me alongside, and he was able to say, "No, you, you look completely intact, and the and the, the tail rotor is there, but it's it's windmilling." I experimented with, uh, as I say, with the with the speed and and attitude and and where I thought the the parameters of this new type of flying machine lay, and uh, so anyway, I, I elected that I was going to do a running landing, and the 109, of course, having wheels. It took a bit of shaking off the uh, the memory that the last two that had tried that um, had been fatal, and I had a realization during that uh, process of experimenting that I was going to completely run out of hands right at the moment that I needed four hands because the throttles for the 109 shut off in the overhead panel. Was I think they've corrected it since, but this was in a, a Mark One Augusta 109, and so right at the moment when I really, really wanted to have my left hand on the collective, I was going to need it to go up the overhead panel. Well, thankfully I had a film producer in the in the seat next to me and a cameraman in the back, so the cameraman spent his time you know, securing a lot of quite heavy metal as tightly as he could. And I ran the, the producer through the process of how to shut down the engines and explained, you know, how to do it and then when we were going to do it and why we were going to do it at that point. So in the end, yes, uh, we were lined up at about five miles on an extended center line to a, 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 a civilian airfield. And um, the... Uh, about a mile to go, the S-76 peeled away and said, well, good luck. And that was the only sort of gulp moment. And then I was able to concentrate for the last mile on trying to get it, or trying to keep it lined up with the runway. And I had sort of said to myself, okay, I'll, I'll leave it till about 10 feet before I top the throttles. And then 
you know, a bit is on the on the deck as it's lined up with the runway. In the final analysis, I left it till about five feet. It just felt like I needed to leave it as long as I possibly could. And sure enough, the moment those throttles were chopped, uh, the nose whips around. Uh, so I did get it onto the deck um, as it sort of passed through rubbing my heading, and she tilted up on one side, and there was a you know a couple of moments of is it going to roll over or is it going to settle back down and she did settle back down, and we rolled to a stop and all took a, a big gulp of air at that point. I can uh, imagine. What was what was your touchdown speed? You reckon? Uh, about about sixty, I think. Wow. Okay. Um, maybe maybe slightly less, but about that. Yeah. All right. So yes, it's hooking hooking along, and uh, and then uh, yeah, I love it. You, you get out and and uh, and request. Well, I don't think you requested. You just got out and and had a smoke there on the runway <laughs> straight afterwards. Which would be understandable. I did. I, I did. You know, we've obviously followed down the runway by the fire engines, and we discussed in advance uh, with the car whether we were going to um, uh, lay a foam runway and all that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so uh, the, uh, as we come to a stop, the, the fire engines surround us, and um, we got out. And obviously, I wanted to go down the back and look at the tail, having not been in any way. Uh, shivering during the process we all found that as we stopped and we got out of the aircraft our legs actually didn't work anymore so we just sort of sat down on the tarmac and the, the fire chief came over and uh, he said uh, nice job mate and I said look I know we're in the middle of an airport here but I'm just going to have a smoke if that's okay with you and he said you go right ahead mate <laughs> very much so and uh, look, you know, I imagine you've analysed that over and over, uh, especially in the process of them committing that to to, uh, to writing in the book as well. But looking back, is there anything you would have done differently, or because you know, again, that's a particular machine where you're quite fast and the, the big tail fin. And we spoke before. I've got the the R44 flight manual here in front of me, and it essentially says, you know, immediately anti-auto rotation, maintain 70 knots, and conduct power off auto with the throttle and the detent. You know, was there? A, did you consider at any stage actually conducting an auto to the field, or uh, you were fairly confident with the speed and, and the the way it was reacting that you're always going to uh, run it on? Would I do it differently again? Uh, if I was in a 109, I would do it the same again. I was happier doing it at speed than I, than I think I would have been doing it in an auto. But I don't think there's many helicopters that applies to. In most cases, you know, shut it down and and, uh, and get it on the ground in an auto. I have a mate in uh, in in the UK, Paul Moran, who um, has survived, if you would believe it, twice being run into by fixed wing. Uh, whilst he's in the cruise, they've come up underneath and taken his entire tail boom off. Twice. Um, twice. Now that um, that takes a bit of belief. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure whether he's a good guy or not to go fly with you. <laughs> Is it a good thing that you've got that out of the way? Or yeah, it'd be pretty rare to have a third time, too. Absolutely. But, you know, uh, he's proved that, uh, you know, in both those cases, he, he shut the engine very, very rapidly and took it to the ground and uh, and, and literally walked out of it. So, yeah, it, it, in most cases, and especially to you know people flying Robinsons and those sort of things that have no tail surface area at all, shut it down as quickly as you can and uh, 
and then you've got whatever it is, 20, 30, 40 seconds of um, learning to fly the, this new type of flying machine before you uh, before you get to ground zero. And at that, at that point, of course, you know, with all of the training that we do, with all the rotations and so on, hey, you know, even if it's not a very pretty arrival, if you can uh, if you can walk out of it, then you, you've done a good job, I think. Jerry, out of interest, what was the original Seeking story? How'd they recover it? <laughs> I'm about to prove my point because I can't remember. <laughs> <That's today. right>. <laughs> <laughs> but but at that instant when I needed it, it was all there. Um, um, but it, it, I assume it's still in there somewhere, but I couldn't I couldn't recall it right now. No worries. Well, look, we're coming on time there, and it's a shame because there's so many awesome stories that we haven't talked about. You know, the, the car going across the top of you uh, as you're doing a cliff rescue and uh, all crazy stuff, but uh, that's all in the book. Um, but so quickly, to finish up on the flying side, is there, you know, can you think of the, a, a gold nugget or the best piece of advice that you've been, you know, taught or learnt as you went through your flying career that you could pass on to someone else? What's, uh, if you could pass on, you know, one particular tip? Oh, now you put me on the spot. Um, I think that, uh, you know, what I was saying earlier about the navigation and uh, you know, don't rely on toys um, is, is probably the, one of the biggest. And I think that um, there is a sense that, you know, I've, I've lost mates through the years to helicopters. There is a sense of two things. One is that peculiarly most of them have been the very, very best. You know, one of one of them a long time ago was in a jet ranger and he had a terror drive shaft failure uh, in a very full aircraft, you know, uh, actually with two of his kids on board and he didn't make it. I think that there is something in that particular one about the fact that he was so used to forward flying that he couldn't kind of, believe that the thing was capable of, of, of flying in this state. Now, I, I've been very lucky that in film flying, you end up putting the aircraft deliberately into some very odd sideways movements and some very odd you know, up and down movements and so on. And I think that, uh, that it is worth now and again just experimenting with just how far out of balance can you fly this machine. You know, where, where are where where are the boundaries? Where's where's the edges of the envelope? Because if you've been there, then when it's forced upon you, then potentially you you have uh, more belief in the machine than you would otherwise do. You know, my uh, one of my instructors uh, went on the Bell course and uh, came back and demonstrated to me um, engine offs from 10 feet going up to I think we went up to about 80 feet in the hover, you know, right in the avoid curve. Um, uh, and again, uh, we uh, did it coming down into the avoid curve, and um, and you go, wow, this you know this machine is capable of extraordinary things. I just have to believe that. So I think that uh, that's a rather odd piece of advice, but um, you know, above and beyond all of the usual stuff, uh, that's something that I've that I've learned as time's gone by, I suppose. All right, what's next for, for Jerry Grayson? You sort of tease at the end of the, the book that you, you may be getting close to hanging up the, the flying gloves. Uh, what, what are you looking at for the next uh, couple of years? What's, uh, what's on the cards? Do you know, I've loved the process of writing the book. I've had such fabulous responses from people, and the ones that have really thrilled me have been the ones that are you know, non-technical, non-flying people. 
um, people's mothers and grandmothers and things, then I, you know, I couldn't put it down. Well, that, that's great um, if it's made our industry uh, a little more accessible to people who otherwise you know, didn't know much about it. And so I really enjoyed that part of it. I've really enjoyed hooking up with old airframes and as a result of that, you know, people that I haven't seen in 35, 40 years. And uh, I always intended it to be a two-parter. So I'm, I'm enjoying writing film pilots at the moment about all of the peculiar experiences doing that. And uh, who knows where, where that goes to. I, I've always wanted to write and, I, you know, I'm, I'm just <clears throat> I'm very, feel very privileged to have had a, a flying career that's you know, worth writing a few words down about. So, yeah, a bit more of that would be fine by me. Excellent. All right. Well, how, how can folks find out a little bit more uh, about what you're up to and get details of the book? Where's the best places to go? Sure. Well, um, the, uh, we're pretty active on the Facebook side where we're, we're Rescue Pilot and also the, the, the website, rescuepilot.net. And if you, uh, if you click down the bottom of the first page, um, there's the opportunity to read the first uh, chapter for free. And there's also, I can't remember exactly where it is, but there is a, a button uh, where you can sign up for updates. So just uh, all you've got to do is leave your email address. And um, when we when we bung more stuff on there, then uh, you get an alert to it. So, um, yeah, either rescuepilot.net or, or the Facebook Rescue Pilot. And I'm not, I'm not sure if it's your film flying coming through or some uh, work there on the, on the editors and publishers, but uh, the book definitely starts with a a, a bang, like a, a big Hollywood sort of production. So it's uh, yeah, the first chapter is is very good read if you just want to put a toe in and and uh, and, and get a, a very good story straight off the bat. Thank you, Nick. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Jerry, for your time. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing some more bits and pieces as they come out. So thank you. Great stuff. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Cheers. You can see a video of Jerry talking about the Wessex and the crew coordination aspect of the SAR job on the show notes for this episode at rotarywingshow.com when you're looking for episode 29. There'll be a link there to Jerry's books website and the Facebook page there as well. And on his website, you can read the, the first chapter of Rescue Pilot for free, which covers the story that I mentioned at the start of the episode where Jerry has to start up a Wessex in a hangar before rescuing the crew off a sinking Greek freighter. Thanks to our sponsors for this episode, trainmorepilots.com, where you can pick up some help on marketing your aviation business. And folks, keep the feedback coming. I really enjoy hearing from you and what you guys are up to. If you want to ask a follow-up question of Jerry or any of the, the past interview guests, then the best way is to leave a comment on the website under that particular episode. You can always, always reach me too at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. I've been pretty busy this week working on the show, so we've got another two interviews recorded and being edited at the moment, so keep an eye out for those. You can either subscribe to the email list or on iTunes to know when they come out. Thanks again for hanging out to learn a little bit more about the world of helicopters. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, wishing you a great week ahead.